Do you want to start or do you want me to? Why don't you start this time? <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome to Ghoul School. I'm you, Adam Todd Brown. And I'm Andy Sell. We're your hosts. We're going to talk about horror movies today, if you can believe that. We're your hosts. Hosts. Eh? <laughs> oh, man, that was loud. No one has ever done that before. That was excessively loud. <laughs> Do you think they make mixtapes for each other in the I NSA hope, of I other people's so. conversations? Like, yeah. Like that's the only... Like uh, email them around and yeah, shit. Yeah, that's the last bastion of tape trading <laughs> in America. I want in on those tapes. NSA agents and fish heads. That's all it's down to now. <laughs> yeah, so we're back. I'm okay. I don't know. <laughs> I'm I'm okay too. I just, I just finished the first draft of a feature. Nice. Uh, I am doing this. We are doing this. We're doing this. I, I don't have much else to report right now. Maybe by the time this uh, comes out, yeah, I'll have more going on. That's usually my answer when people are... Because I just do the same thing all the time. <laughs> I, I work all the time. So anyway, found footage. Oh, that's right. That's right. We're doing a podcast. We, well, <laughs> we were very much doing a podcast just now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just not the podcast we do. Right. Uh, yeah, found footage. Here we are, episode two. Today, you know, last time we had the extraterrestrial origins of the found footage genre and uh, and, and some very terrestrial origins, actually. <laughs> right. We kind of went a little exhaustive. A um, neat conspiracy theory mm-hmm. around. Oh, my. Yeah. Which you and I should do an episode of the conspiracy podcast that I co-host with Connor McSpadden. Oh, wonderful. We could talk about about the poltergeist curse. Yeah. 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 All of that shit is great. Yeah. So we're jumping in terms of the main movie, because the main movie we focused on last time was the McPherson tapes or UFO abduction. UFO abduction. And now we're jumping about, is it about nine years ahead? Yeah, when did last about, broadcast? Uh, last it was like broad- 98, 98, right? yes. So about nine years away from yeah. that. And it is... We're not jumping far ahead in terms of technology. No. It's uh, still got the same kind of... The last broadcast very much has the same aesthetic. Well, not really. No. The, the UFO abduction is a little more crude. Yeah, so UFO abduction was shot on just regular VHS. By the time last broadcast came out, they were shooting on mini DV. So right. the technology had actually improved quite a bit, not just in the terms of the cameras that were being used and the and the uh, medium used to store the, the footage, but editing, projection, presentation, right. all of that had become a lot more sophisticated by then. Uh, and we'll get into that for sure. 
we'll go back a little bit. I do want to I want to bring something up in okay. episode, from episode one. I did say you know I, I said some stuff about the first time found footage and and we kind of remarked a bunch about how no one had been using this uh, the idea of found footage for narrative films. It's not entirely accurate. It wasn't used yet for horror films. I think is what we were more startled by is just how long it took right. for an actual straight up horror film to come around using this format, this new right. idea. But there were there were other films around that time uh, in that time that had been made using found the found footage format. You know what you would call docu fiction, right? What what's frustrating to me right now is we're recording all of these and they'll all be recorded by the time they go up. But someone's going to hear you say that and think, yeah, that comment I left after the second episode. <laughs> That's why they're talking about this no, now. Fuck you guys. We're catching this on our own. <laughs> That's the thing. We too. are our fact checkers. Now, having listened to that, I could just say, let's go back and cut in this little bit. Ah, no. But I don't want to do that. I like that we're kind of as we're doing these chronicling the growth of the podcast itself and right. as we try to sort of streamline the format a little bit that's that's kind of a hallmark of unpops podcast yeah. we just sort of have an idea and launch into it and then eventually it turns into a good yeah, thing eventually yeah like six yeah, episodes we find from now, you groove. guys are gonna love this yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean you had things like in in 1968 there was a film called David Holtzman's Diary, which we will get into later. It was part of the inspiration, actually, for the film we'll be discussing today, last broadcast. That film had been made, from what I understand and what I've read, meant to be a satire on personal, personal non-narrative documentary films. Um, uh-huh. I've never... S- have you seen it? Yes. What I, is it? What's it called again? It's called David Holtzman's Diary. And if you read a synopsis of this film on IMDb or on Wikipedia or something, it's kind of presented as a commentary on the Vietnam War. A young man who's now an A1 in the draft uh-huh. for Vietnam decides to document his day. That's not what it's about at all. (laughs) I mean, yes, those elements are there. There's a young man, this character, David Holtzman, played by L.M. Kit Carson, actually, who would later go on to write Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So what year did this come out? I saw somewhere that it was released in 73, but was made in 67 or 68. Oh, okay. So this is is long before Cannibal Holocaust, even. Right. But it's not a horror film. Except it kind of is. It's you'll see this a lot. It's it's sort of an art film. I mean, when we're obviously we're talking about found footage on this podcast. We're not talking about Bruce Connors' A movie from 1958. We're not talking about Adam Curtis's found footage collage documentaries. We right. are talking about found footage as it relates to horror. David Holtzman's Diary relates to horror in the sense that it is a commentary on media and a certain generation's preoccupation with media and. It's got a lot of male gaze stuff in it, too. This guy is creeping on his neighbor. He's creeping on his girlfriend with the camera. It has a lot of those tropes of turn the camera off, all that stuff. And it kind of moves into Peeping Tom territory. If you haven't seen Peeping Tom, it's a uh, 1960 film, British. It's sort of like Psycho, but with a film camera. And it kind of, in some ways, pioneered the idea of the killer's POV and incorporating literally in this film through the, it's his footage of these people he's killing. So David Holtzman's diary kind of goes into that. We'll talk 
a little bit more about that either later in this episode or in the next episode. Yeah. <laughs> but these these movies were being made. In 71, you had Punishment Park, which is not found footage, but it is a pseudo-doc or a docufiction. In you know 68, you also had Medium Cool, which is not a documentary. It's a narrative film, but set against the backdrop of the 1968 Democratic National Convention right. unrest. And so it has a piece of history in this narrative film going on in real time. And the film itself is meant to be a, criti- a criticism of the media and the ethics of journalism. There's a lot of that in the films that were made at this time, predating the horror found footage that we're talking about. There's Special Bulletin in 1983, which was supposedly news footage. It was faked news footage. There was the Manson family movies from 84. And there was a Vietnam War movie called 84 Charlie Mopic from 1989, same year as UFO abduction. Right. So these things existed, but I just wanted to kind of address that to say like these things existed, but we're speaking about the marriage of this found footage format or the pseudo documentary format and horror story. Right. Because it's a natural relationship. Like the two things should... It it surprises me that it took... Like we said on the last episode, it it legitimately surprises me how long it took for found footage mm-hmm. as a horror genre to take hold. Yeah. And when, you, and when people cite Cannibal Holocaust, that's legitimate. Right. Uh, that's absolutely legitimate. But I... I don't want to explore that movie. <laughs> you know, we glossed over it yeah. in episode one, mostly because I have no desire to revisit it. I, I just don't want to watch it again. Yeah. And it's a brutal movie. It's, it's brutal. It's just, there's no and joy it. And it gets worse knowing the backstory behind yes. it. Like, it makes it so much harder to watch. Yes. Just, ugh. Yeah, exactly. And it's not that good. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not a good movie. And it's got a great score. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of it's got love, a lot of personality music from it is great but it's it's not something i want to rewatch it's also something that there's plenty of stuff out there about yeah and i did need to bring it up because mondo films and ethnographies and shockumentaries in general must be addressed for the same reason that it's impossible to talk about found footage horror without examining the origins and evolution of documentary film. But even that I don't want to go into too much right. because you get lost in the, in the well, what's docufiction? What's a docudrama? Right. What, you know, I could talk about the axes of prefiguration and the, the, uh, the diagrams opposing irony with synecdoche or whatever. And I, I don't want to do that. Yeah. I wonder <laughs> if people can hear me just nodding my head. Yeah. Going, yep. yep. Uh, if you want to get into that, <laughs> I recommend Representing Reality by Bill Nichols. Uh, he also wrote Ideology and the Image and several other texts about documentary filmmaking. It's a good source for these kinds of discussions, and I think that these kinds of discussions are, are important. Uh, I just don't have the time to sift through it all because right. I'm not getting paid for this yet. <laughs> yeah, that would be a huge time commitment. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's that. That's that <laughs> right. part of this. Yeah, we can exactly. If you want to talk about the other <laughs> and and how that goes, look into that. Right. The other though, the concept of the other that is, you know, was the focus of the ethnographies and things like the Mondo films and especially something like Cannibal Holocaust is that the other is a natural place for horror. Right. That's what horror is about. Fear is about the unknown and the unknown as presenting a threat is the ultimate in the concept of the other. Sure. 
And what's more other than the wilderness? The wilderness. The woods. Well, the ocean, but that's well, hard, <laughs> hard, to, hard to have a horror movie Man, genre the ocean spring up is from just, the ocean. The ocean is just the woods underwater. It's <laughs> fucking... <laughs> I'm not a fan of the ocean or the woods. I don't fuck with camping. I love woods. Love them. Also want to be in a house. Yeah. With protection from them. Yeah. I would like a house in the woods. Yes. Because nothing, nothing bad ever happens (laughs) in a house in the woods. No, I'd like a nice cabin in the woods. Whoever heard of anything (laughs) wrong going there. (laughs) So we're going to, we're in the woods today and it's fitting because our, the, the film we're going to be discussing is in the woods. The two right. films we're going to be discussing actually are in the woods. And the woods, that's where horror is born. That's where, you know, when you talk about horror stories having roots in folklore or the cautionary tales, as we discussed in the previous episode, where it's like, yeah. you want your kids to be safe, keep them out of the woods, tell them there's a fucking monster in there. Right. You like know, the village. Yeah. Like, Spoiler okay, alert. All right. <laughs> Can we just have one episode <laughs> without him? Nope. Guess not. <laughs> and this, you know, we're talking European folklore, uh, right. Germanic, Eastern European, even Western European, and North American. You know, whether you're talking about the Baba Yaga or the Wendigo, the woods has a monster in it. Right. The wilderness has a monster in it. And that's how you got to keep people on their guard about it. It's a good way, good way to keep people in line. Yeah. Keep people from straying too far away. Like in the, like in the village. <laughs> oh, motherfucker. <laughs> You're going to make me jump out this window. <laughs> it's, it's like in the village when... Um, That's my role on this podcast, just to insert M. Night Shyamalan. This podcast brought to you by M. Night Shyamalan. He's something else. I got a twist for you. Yeah, horror is the birthplace of... Sorry, horror is not the birthplace of... The woods. Are the, the woods. Birthplace of horror. And every region has its monster. Right. Uh, specifically, we'll be talking about you know North America now. And the ideas of North American monsters, even in this information age, even in this age of Google, oh, sure. Google Street View and Google Earth. In a lot of ways, it's making it more prevalent because now it's easier to tie images like the Montauk monster mm-hmm. is a good example. Oh, That's yeah. an actual picture of something that washed up ashore. And people can take that and go, well, yeah, there's also this government facility right across the water from that where <laughs> Lyme disease is supposed to. And that's like that's that's an actual conspiracy is that this facility is doing all these crazy experiments in that Lyme disease escaped from there. Oh, the Montauk monster is from there. And it's because it's easier to I just, to just got this high those things. I just together. got this picture in my head of someone bringing Lyme disease, a cake <laughs> with a file in it. <laughs> big tick <laughs> yeah yeah there's a giant tick monster filing away at a bar and then the guard comes by and he hides it behind his back and starts whistling except he's still got a bunch of other arms <laughs> yeah. offering him a piece of cake it's you know i was telling you my friend dan said when i was telling him about the podcast said well it sounds like it's either going to be the info wars or the this american life of horror movies and um I feel like we're leaning towards InfoWars so far. Because we had the the UFO abduction conspiracy last time where it was like, maybe it's real and they're just saying it's a movie. We're going to have some conspiracies in this episode too, just not quite as bonkers. Right. (laughs) Bonkers meaning borderline believable (laughs) with that first one. By bonkers, you mean 100% true according to this lieutenant colonel from the United States Air Force. 
the America, North America is still full of woods. There's still right. lots of woods. There's still lots of areas of wilderness. There's still lots of unpopulated areas where these legends and these uh, myths can thrive. You have the Flatwoods Monster of West Virginia, which is interesting because it's like a mechanical monster. Oh, really? Which really is apropos for what we're talking about today. Yeah. You've got the Dogman of Michigan. You've got the Skunk Ape, which is in Florida in the southeast. You've got Chupacabra. Champ. You've got the Chupacabra. You've got all of these things. And, of course, you have the Jersey Devil right. or the Leeds Devil of the Pine Barrens, which was the subject of the film we're discussing today. But before we get into that, let's talk about another wilderness and brace yourself for a brilliant transition here. <laughs> let's talk about the wilderness of the digital revolution wow that was smooth <laughs> this podcast sponsored by segway <laughs> can you put in a sound effect of the guy who invented segways going off a cliff in a segway right now <laughs> have i ever told you annie letterman's segway story no you know i went to college with her oh really yeah i love annie letterman she's great yeah she did a show at the improv i think it was either the improv or the comedy store and paul allen from microsoft was in the audience and she said at the end of the show all the comics were like well we need to go out and see what paul allen is fucking driving this is probably like a spaceship or something and he and his wife get on segways and just roll off into the los angeles night what the (laughs) shit that's one of my favorite stories i think i've ever heard has anyone ever made a found footage horror movie on a segway (laughs) we should write it we should and yeah. have it like we can do the UFO abduction or last broadcast thing where it takes place like seven or eight years ago, you know, right, when segways right. were a thing. Yeah, so it makes sense yeah, that we're on we a segway. Put lots of dated references. And that it's filmed it. on a flip camera for some reason. <laughs> on an LG. <laughs> <laughs> I've got one. Yeah. I'll shoot it. Let's do I'll it. I'll do it. Let's do the clerks thing, baby. Let's fucking. I'm down. I, I have a guy who makes short films who wants to do a uh, short horror film. I'm always down. With me. You are, let, let's write a horror, short yeah, let's do it. horror film. We should do it. We should finish this podcast first. Oh, should we? Okay. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the 1990s was a treacherous landscape indeed. It was, we were assaulted with found footage, not just found footage in the 90s, but just the idea of look, here's a thing that's happening, but it's also entertainment. Mm-hmm. Like court TV and really the OJ trial, the Rodney King thing. The birth of the 24-hour news cycle. Yeah. The birth of reality television. I mean, actually not birth. Reality television started much earlier. Right. But that's when it kind of came to the forefront. I think mostly as a result of the 1988 writer's strike. Oh, yeah. Which is also the reason we got Halloween 4. It's also the reason we got the Pet Cemetery movie. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know about Pet Cemetery. I knew Halloween 4. There's which... a really great documentary on the making of Pet Cemetery. Oh, really? I believe it's on Shutter right now. It was oh, on Amazon nice. Prime, but I think it's on Shutter. It's wonderful, and I highly recommend it. But they go into how the writer's strike was the reason Pet Cemetery got made. Oh, because wow. Because it was a script that they had sitting around, right. and they didn't know what else to make. Oh, that's interesting. And yeah, yeah it's great. So the digital revolution itself, I'm not going to get into the Wikipedia page because it's huge because it covers oh, really? For the, the digital revolution to the 1970s. <laughs> it goes into the ideas of the industrial revolution, the agricultural revolution. It was the dawning of the information age. Right. And it created its own kind of wilderness in a lot of different ways. It gave us a lot of new technology that we didn't have before. 
Yeah. So that that's a whole lot of frontier to navigate. It wasn't being regulated. There w- there weren't clear cut paths through these things. Right. In the advancement of the technology, and of course, anytime you have emerging information technology, what comes right at its heels is emerging philosophies, right? Which is its own kind of technology, really. Uh, in addition to that, you have, like you said, we were being bombarded, right? Suddenly by imagery and information in a way that we never had been before, so that we weren't used to it. Nobody living at that time was right. used to. This, even as a child, if you were growing up through it, there was a, a process of adjustment because the, the the advancements were coming so quickly now. Right. I feel like we're still not used to it. No, we're not. And it's still advancing so quickly that it's 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 too much. It's it's like the the science behind having you know having too many options makes you sad, kind of. Yeah. Oh, dude. And we have so many options in everything now. It's just like we should be so happy, but it doesn't work that way. For such a long time, I thought I was an extrovert. extrovert. I just was talking to a friend the other day about uh-huh. how I, you know, I did all this stuff in Hollywood, and I had a bunch of social aca- events in one week, and so I, I needed to kind of lay low for a week and recharge, yeah. and he was like, what happened to you? I always thought you were this like social person, and I was like, no. <laughs> I, I think I was just because I had enough downtime at that time that right. he knew me being social. But now with social media and in an industry that constantly requires networking and FaceTime and, and connectivity. Yeah. And, you know, since cell phones, if you have a job, you're never off the clock. Right. Like you can't recharge. There's no downtime because right. it's all that you have to deliberately make an earnest attempt to yeah. avoid all of this stuff. Yeah. And it 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 makes it hard to it makes it hard to focus mm-hmm. and i think that always impacts your mood like not being able to focus always makes you feel a little overwhelmed yes and for someone who has adhd right <laughs> that was already a problem yeah yeah uh, as you'll see looking over the notes that i <laughs> create for every podcast that's perfect actually because as we're discussing digital revolution the advancement yeah. of technology both in filmmaking and in news presentation and all these other things we have the biggest advancement of all at the time the internet right which was its own frontier it started with uh, look let's not get into it <laughs> yeah <laughs> But it is it it uh, it's the same thing as everything else you've mentioned. It's just another revolution, sort of. But it's still, for the most part, unregulated, mm-hmm. and that makes it a little more interesting place to be yes. than on television or the radio or even just in movies. Yes, it was when it, it was a whole new thing to do that nobody had figured out yet so it was it was a little there was a more of an allure to it because it was a little more exciting even as tv was changing even as film was changing this internet thing was brand new it was a new set of woods to go into right and you had since we'll be getting into folklore without getting into the development of creepypasta a lot of folklore that was born on the internet internet right usenet groups which usenet was started in 1980 before anyone really had computers, you right? Know, personally, even office computers were. Yeah, back when it was mostly it was a government thing. Mm-hmm. It reflects this idea of the of the wilderness by improving upon something that already existed. It improved upon the BBS, which is to say, sorry, <laughs> I'm not a tech head. 
Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to try either. to avoid certain things that I don't understand. But this is the thing is that but previously uh, the internet existed in the form of BBS and it, that was concentrated in one server. What Usenet did was it took the idea of of these boards and these communication formats and spread it across a network of servers. Again, creating this wilderness, but also reflecting the democrat the democratization of new media technologies in general because now it wasn't just concentrated, it was spread about. Right. So there was a lot there were it was decentralized. Usenet's significant because it was the first community on the internet and it's responsible for many public developments in the pre-commercial internet simply by virtue of bringing people together under the categorization of common interests. They were called hierarchies at the time and had subthreads. The World Wide Web, Linux, and the Mosaic browser which created the image tag and turned the internet into a uh, from a purely informational format into a graphical medium. Those were all first announced on Usenet. So out of this wilderness, right. we have all of these things sprouting up. It's also unfortunately the birthplace of spamming. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> and and it became the the Usenet hierarchy alt dot folklore dot urban became a place where urban legends were shared and chain emails were shared. And this predates Creepypasta and also kind of serves as a a point of reference right. for or point of connection for the, the idea of the folklore we're going to be discussing today. Right. Now that I think about it, the internet is probably that link we're looking for in terms of why it took so long for horror movies to adapt to the found footage mm -hmm. format it i'm sure in a lot of ways was just a matter of the type of information you need to base a found footage movie on like the jersey devil like how well was the jersey devil really known before the internet exactly like it would be well known in jersey and you'd you know maybe move and tell people about it but it's not going to be that or if you were the kind of person who i was a kid that was into stuff like that so i would get you know the daniel cohen books or the time life books right and research stuff like that but even those not a lot of citations you know not a lot yeah. of like grounding in those works so yeah, if you were from a region that had one of these bits of folklore, if you were from Tennessee, for example, you knew what the Bell Witch was. Right. Outside of Tennessee, maybe not so much. Yeah. Unless Unsolved Mysteries had done an episode about it or In Search Of, you know. And people having the ability to see that movie and then go to their computer and go, okay, what the fuck is the Jersey Devil? Yes. In this pre-internet age when you see something on the internet and you're like, ooh, is that real? Like, <laughs> yeah. We, like, we didn't know. It was like we assumed everything on the internet was fake at one point just because there was no way to verify any of that shit. Yeah. And, but at the same time, being able to go to your computer and search the Jersey Devil and go, okay, this is the thing other people have talked about. I can see how it probably lent almost an air of credibility to a movie like The Last Broadcast. Yeah, or especially UFO if abduction. when you go on your internet to look this thing up, what you get is a fabricated news story right. that was planted <laughs> by a filmmaker, uh, which exactly was a thing. You know, this yeah. is the prototype fake news. Speaking of <laughs> it taking a long time. To get there, the internet also, the, the, the rising prominence of the internet sparked a thing called the 1996 Telecommunications Act, which right. I think is incredibly relevant to understanding the media landscape of the time 
and the push to further democratize new media. Right. And the 1996 Telecommunications Act is, speaking of things taking a long time, it was the first piece of legislation addressing the telecommunications industry since 1934. That's insane. That's 62 years. Yeah. Without regulation, without a piece of legislation ironing things out. We cannot let the internet go that far without (laughs) someone stepping in and doing something. No, and it's the internet that kind of prompted it to happen because, you know, cable television didn't even exist yet in 1934 when the last piece of this legislation had... And the 1996 Telecommunications Act primarily concerns itself with the cable industry. The cable industry, yeah, it it didn't exist in 1934, but it has been around for a long time. And it has its own complicated history of sociopolitical paradox. I don't want to get too much into the history of cable TV. If you're interested (laughs) in that, I do recommend the book uh, Rich Media, Poor Democracy by Robert McChesney. I'm going to be recommending a lot of books I had to read in college on this episode <laughs> of the podcast. But it, it really goes into the history of cable TV and how it was originally meant to bring television signals to rural or mountainous areas where they couldn't, right. you know, and then how it evolved from there at one point to almost become a peer-to-peer communication medium. Yeah. And then, you know, then the corporation stepped in and said, this is what we're doing, and we're going to run whatever we want so that we can make a profit off of this. Yeah. So that, you know, fuck this free on-air TV you guys are getting. Right. The Telecommunications Act of 1996 did do some good things. It created wider accessibility to emerging tech and provided a digital network to connect schools and libraries. That's awesome. That's great. Right. Unfortunately, the legislation itself was mostly a tidal wave of deregulation in the name of free market competition that opened up the cable industry to monopoly ownership by major corporations, concentrating the output of information and culture in this dawning age of information into the hands of a very wealthy few. So not not so the best cool thing, <laughs> especially considering that it had been 60 years since anyone in the federal government had stepped in to propose anything, really, in a significant way. And that's a long time to go without regulating any industry, let alone one that is so influential not just on culture, but all manner of socio-political paradigms and exchanges. Right. That's a long fucking time. (laughs) Very long, yeah. So the backlash of the Telecommunications Act was a fire in the belly of media activism. And it's kind of interesting how serendipitous it was when, as video technology is improving and being ch- becoming cheaper and being put into the hands of more people, as we discussed in the previous episode of, of the democratization of this, you saw things kind of catching on media activism-wise. Uh, yeah. There were more people able to make documentaries or what became known as citizen journalism and the different, we'll say leftist, I'll say just and right, (laughs) (laughs) political activist organizations and uh, affinity groups networking a little more and, and becoming coalitions and finding voices and gaining momentum so that this new, new left that we saw in the wake of the first Gulf War started becoming more galvanized and more ambitious. Right. Eventually kind of 
swelled and crested into the late 90s anti-globalization movement that saw the 1999 WTO protests, right. the 2000 IMF protests, and developed these things called indie media or independent media centers that became a network of citizen journalists and journalism professionals working in tandem with grassroots activists. Got a little bit ahead of myself here. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a consequence of the, of the 1996 Telecommunications Act and the landscape that we were in at the medium. However, if you want to talk narrative film, let me kind of recalibrate for a second. Because I had a thread, and I definitely <laughs> lost it. So, yeah, I got it. <laughs> so from here, with this idea of this wilderness people blazing trails or stumbling around in the dark, as it were. Let's tighten this focus down a little bit. We talked about, you know, the metaphorical wilderness of emerging technologies as video went from analog to digital, how uh, cameras and recorders were combined to create camcorders, how we moved from VHS, SVHS, VHSC into Hi8, into Mini-DV in 1995. The metaphorical technology of cinematic philosophies that that emergence brought about things like Kiristami's close-up from 1990 which is a docufiction uh -huh. again the new philosophies represented in citizen journalism and independent media centers another thing that changed the landscape for independent film at the time was Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape oh, sure. in 1989 which revolutionized independent film distribution, production, all of it, not to say a certain name, but this film, which was written in eight days, changed the game for everything when it was picked up by Miramax, who, along with Thin Blue Line, interestingly enough, in Errol Morris' documentary, yeah. this kind of paved the way for the 90s to be the decade of independent film. Interestingly enough, also, Miramax started in 1981 with... The Burning, a horror movie. Oh, wow. With effects by Tom Savini. Oh, nice. Great movie. At some point, we'll discuss it at length here. I just thought it was an interesting thing to point out. Yeah. So along with that, as everything is a goddamn wilderness in the 90s, at some point I might get sick of saying that. <laughs> Let's talk about the wilderness that was the horror genre at the time of the 1990s. Yeah. The 90s, the early 90s have never, it doesn't strike me as a good time for horror movies. No, it wasn't. Because it, it, it's when all of those early to mid-80s horror franchises start hitting that awkward midpoint. It's when everything starts dying. And I will say, I'll offer a disclaimer here, it's hard to pin down an overarching trend for the decade because it's hard to do that for any decade. Decades are like that. Sure. We think of certain things as representative of a specific 10-year period, like when we think of the 70s, we think of disco. Well, it's even like, the 90s is the yeah. first half is definitely grunge, but then it's new metal. At yeah, the and end. then, well, yeah, and the, with a whole rave thing in the middle. Right. Like, it's so that idea that any decade is itself defined by a certain set of cultural phenomena is, is inaccurate. Right. Early parts of decades, as you said, have more in common with the later years of the previous decade than the later years of their own. And also, too, like you think about oh, REM, they're a 90s band. They started nah. in 79. Yeah, like, and they did most of their good work in the 80s. Yeah, a lot of things that we think about or associate with a certain decade were actually there before, especially if you grew up 
the like Pixies I did too. In, the, like the Pixies, yeah, the Pixies. people are 80s. like they're one of the best bands of the '90s. No, they put out two yeah. average albums in the '90s. They yeah. were one of the best bands of the '80s. But if you're like me and you grew up in Iowa, a right. lot of times shit didn't get to you until yeah. like we were still rocking mall hair. The women in <laughs> Iowa were still doing the mall hair shit with their bangs oh, in yeah. like '93. Oh yeah, and I that, grew up in Peoria, Illinois. Okay, yeah. good, you get it. <laughs> oh Did yeah. Did you know that mall hair died in L.A. in like '87? What? It was that? already done. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Because there were still like those L.A. Ba- well, I guess they were all so big by then, like yeah. Guns and Roses and yeah. Motley. Like they, it's not like they were still playing the fucking whiskey. And, yeah. Shit like that. They were like touring the world. So yeah. yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. It's and even, you know, when you talk about grunge, oh, early nineties. Okay. Nirvana started in eighty nine. Sure. Right. But they were influenced by bands that had already been around. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like and those bands were a backlash to what was going on culturally in the mid eighties that a lot of times we associate with the late eighties anyway, tangent. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And as as we're as we're discussing now, this idea of looking at decades by their cultural definitions, uh, it becomes more complicated for those of us who were alive during that decade. You know, if we were to exhaustively explore the films of the 1950s, for example, we would find too much going on to confidently identify one unifying cinematic trend. Right. But because we weren't alive then. Our only points of reference are the films that survive the test of time, the ones that stood out. So they're the ones that define the decade for us. So we can map these trends. Uh, they, they form a distinct framework. But for those of us that were there, the 90s are, are pretty muddy water there. Yeah. The woods. You yeah, know? <laughs> we, for sure. There's a lot going on in there. Uh, but we can, having said all that, we can isolate a few things. The idea that in the early 90s, horror was kind of shitty. Yeah. It was the final lap of the major slasher franchises. Right. Uh, they were still clinging to their heyday of the previous decade, but they were dying. I mean, Freddy was almost dead. Yeah. Jason was almost in hell. And you bring up, uh, I'm jumping ahead a little, but you bring up Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs to me was almost like the, to keep the 90s references going, it was almost like the Nirvana of horror movies, where mm-hmm. when that came out, it was like, Okay, we just have to do everything different now. Perfect. Because yeah. this movie came out and everything's different now. And in a way, it can be seen as a reaction to the excesses of the 80s. Sure. Yeah. You know, the way that Nirvana was basically a middle finger to Guns N' Roses. Right. You can say Silence of the Lambs is essentially a middle finger to Friday the 13th. Right. Yeah. Because there's nothing goofy about it. There's nothing. It's it's, it's a procedural. A, yeah. It's mm-hmm. a very straightforward forward psychological thriller, but it's still, it has a lot of horror elements. Ding, ding, ding. You just said the word of the moment. <laughs> psychological yeah. thriller. Yeah. Nothing defines my attitude towards the overall trends of horror of the 90s. Oh, like sure. the term psychological thriller in air quotes. Yeah, um, like seven. Seven copycat right kiss the girls any of those things any of what was running rampant in the 90s that was ashamed to call itself horror the trend in the in the 90s basically became you know in the wake of the writer's strike and in the wake of all of these slasher franchises kind of burning themselves out and in the wake of the what we considered at the time the masters of horror yeah all except for one, all of them hitting slumps essentially. Carpenter was 
you know, by 94, I think, he was on that downslope. Right. He was on he was on his way to not making movies anymore. Toby Hooper yeah. wasn't doing a lot of note in the 90s, nor was Romero. Right. Nor was I mean Cronenberg had Naked Lunch. Yeah. Which was a which was a big deal, but that wasn't horror. No. Cronenberg suddenly wasn't a horror filmmaker anymore. Right. He did then crash, you know. He kind of left the genre. A lot of these guys weren't doing horror anymore or yeah or, or were not being given the resources to do anything on a bigger level I, you mentioned an exception is it Wes Craven Wes Craven yeah. is the exception yeah Wes Craven is the one who really hit his stride around sure. that time yeah he you know he did people under the stairs oh which, people under the stairs was great which yeah it's not only a great movie that is very prescient nowadays uh, yeah. if you want to talk about the ideas of gentrification and the right wing. Right. People Under the Stairs had its finger on the pulse then. It was also a box office hit. Yeah. It made a lot of money. And, and he then followed that up with New Nightmare, which wasn't so much of a box office hit. It grossed less than Freddy's Dead, <laughs> Ooh. which is sad. But it's so good. New Nightmare is so good. But it's it's really good. It garnered some critical attention. Yeah. And it's one of those films that we now look back on and say, oh, this is the movie that changed things. Yeah. And it was. Because because two years later, we get Scream. Right. Which changes everything. Yes. But even in Scream, you have this reflection of the the embarrassment of the horror genre, like people Yeah. Cuz you had like, cuz it was kind of mocking. Yeah, horror. you had two sides to it really. You had things that called themselves psychological thrillers because they didn't want to call themselves horror because they were scared to. And that was a mi- early to mid 90s thing. Right. That continued on through the late 90s. But by the by the time Scream comes out in 1996, and then it changes everything as far as studio horror is concerned, right. as far as theatrically released horror is concerned, it's the other side of that, where it's not embarrassed to call itself horror, but it's embarrassed to keep a straight face about it. And it's all this yeah. self, self-referential, postmodern, in the best cases, and in the worst cases, just this shitty winking irony. Yeah. Where it's like, yeah, we're in a scary movie, but we know it's dumb. Yeah. You know, and I love Scream. I love some of the films that came out in that wake. But it was, the 90s were very self-aware. Yeah, it got a little grating. Yeah, it was a very, like, apologizing for your silk shirt at the dance thing, you know? Is Yeah. Sorry, that was too real a reference from my own personal life. I had uh, a yellow silk shirt <laughs> yeah, that yeah. I wore with uh, purple yeah, denim yeah. shorts. Uh, man, I had this one that was like four different colors, but they were like, it almost looked like an 80s, like something like it was, someone would wear an art gallery in a movie <laughs> in the 80s, you know? It was like fuchsia and then Very like, a, nice. like a like a yellow and then a black and then a teal. And mm. I loved it. I thought it was so cool when I got it. And then I wore <laughs> it to a dance and was like, I'm going to kill myself. You know? <laughs> yeah, I do know. <laughs> that's what the horror genre was <laughs> in the 90s. It was Pretty very much, afraid of yeah. itself. And that's not to say there weren't other exceptions. You know, we, we, had, we had some good stuff. But it was always under the radar. Right. It was, you know, never very... The stuff that we were seeing was this stuff that was ashamed of what it was or yeah. didn't want to associate itself with what we had called horror. So it was a bad time for the genre. That isn't to say that all horror from the 90s was terrible. No. Because you no. also had people like Ernest Dickerson and Rusty Cundiff. And, uh... But what's your favorite horror film from the 90s? Oh, uh, 
I mean, it's it's probably not the right answer for. Well, no, <laughs> because Blair Witch wasn't the '90s. That came out in 2000. No, right? it was '99. Oh, was it? Yeah. Because I do. I had. I have a very warm spot in my heart for the Blair oh, Witch same here. project. Yeah. Same here. And a lot of stuff, in, like People Under the Stairs, Wes Craven's stuff in the 90s was fantastic. See, I would go with People Under the Stairs. Right. I would say it's actually probably a three-way tie between People Under the Stairs, Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight. Oh, Demon Knight is so fucking good. Yeah, Demon Knight's wonderful. I forgot about Demon Knight. Yeah. And, and then, you know, maybe In the Mouth of Madness. I don't know if I ever saw In the Mouth of Madness. Ooh, it's, it's great. I'll have to check it out. It's great. It's, you know, it's considered lesser carpenter or whatever, but... And I did like the psychological thrillers of the 90s, but, like, Seven is one of my favorite movies, but I still... I've never really considered that a horror movie. Yeah, you don't... And again, it might be because of, you know, the 24-hour news cycle, the idea that, you know, fantasy can't be scarier than reality at this point because we're all now very aware of everything that's going on. And in the late 60s and and up through the 70s, a lot of horror was allegory. I mean, as it always has been, really. Horror films have been allegory for what's been going on at the time. But after what people considered fantasy horror, you had then Romero and Hooper and guys like this that were doing horror, and even in a lot of cases, what you would consider supernatural horror, that was used to comment on what was going on. So it was reminding us of these things that were happening. But in a more creative way, whereas in the 90s you had everyone was so aware of everything that the idea of fantasy seemed dumb. And again, yeah. this is coming out of the late 80s, which was the 80s were a high period for fantasy, not just in horror, but in our daily lives. You know, yeah. the excess of the 80s, the the escapism of it, the way this, that it mirrored the suburban cultural tide of the 50s in a lot of ways. Yeah, there this, was a noticeable lack of monsters in the 90s. Yes. Uh, and and it was replaced with the monster is ourselves. You right. know, you had again Silence of the Lambs, psychological thrillers. Right. And I love Silence of the Lambs. And I love, in some ways, I love Seven. Yeah. And I like a lot of those movies, but they don't scratch the itch. When I want to watch a horror movie, oh yeah, no. I can't put one of those. Like on. Seven is a police movie mm-hmm. to me. That's mm-hmm. a it's a cop thriller. Yeah. And even the the slashers, the the meta slashers that came later in the decade, they're people. They're not. Yeah. They're no. There's no monsters. Right. That to me also defines the difference between our two big films that we're talking about today. Is that one of them is about the monster being us, and the other one is no. There's a fucking monster, and my right. preference will always lean towards the one that's about a fucking monster. Yeah. I'm always disappointed when it doesn't end with there being an actual monster or entity Mm -hmm. or something especially if it ends as a mishmash mess (laughs) the way one of these films ended (laughs) so let's get into it let's do it the last broadcast the last broadcast available on YouTube, uh, I think exclusively. Yes, it's not is, streaming anywhere. It's not streaming anywhere. There is a DVD available that I would like to get, and I wish I could have gotten it before recording this episode because I would like to pour over a lot of the making of stuff. Oh, just sure. Just because most of the information that's available 
on this film comes in the form of of discussions of comparing it to Blair Witch. Right. Or little newspaper articles about what it meant to indie filmmaking and DIY filmmaking and to, you know, the te- the digital video age. And there's not a lot about the actual process of making it. Even in the interviews that I've read and listened to with uh, Locus Weiler and Stefan Avalos, there's not a lot of information. I would love to pour over that and yeah. and, and really engage with it. But again, I'm not getting paid. <laughs> yeah, so, and I so wonder I how much is out there. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of information out there, but I do wonder if it's kind of finite for a film like this. Yes, I, I'm curious. I know that there's bonus stuff on the DVD, and at some point I will get it. Because the one thing, I mean, spoiler alert for anyone who's going to go watch the last broadcast, it's not a great movie. <laughs> it, I think it's, I think it has greatness. Yeah. It definitely falls apart at the end. Right. We'll talk about, I'm excited to talk about the Poughkeepsie tapes at some point. I believe that'll be the next episode. Or maybe the episode after it. Okay. We are going to get to the Poughkeepsie tapes. Because there's there's a twist at the end of the Poughkeepsie tapes that I feel like only about half the people who watch it I didn't get catch it. Catch it. I didn't catch it. I have talked to a few people <laughs> since then who were like, oh, yeah, yeah, I did. Okay. I didn't catch it, and we'll discuss that. And also, we can bring up this film again then when we talk about right. Poughkeepsie tapes, because there is some parallel ground. And also Diary of David Holtzman and Peeping Tom, we can kind of repackage and contextualize that when we talk about Poughkeepsie Tapes, because we're also going to bring up some unpleasantness when we talk about Poughkeepsie Tapes in the form of August Underground and the guinea pig movies and some other stuff Yeah, that's a bummer. But But until then... Until then, the last broadcast was made by Stefan Avalos and Lance Weiler, who met when Avalos was a lab assistant and Weiler was a student at Community College. They're both in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Shout out to Bucks County. Avalos had worked as a grip and a pyro, and Weiler was an AC at the time. Now, when they set out to make the film, and I don't know the timeline of these things when you're reading them third hand through interviews or articles that have a certain trying to paint a certain picture it's you don't know but some of the other information that i saw said that when they set out to make the film avalos had already worked as a producer and director for television and commercials he'd already made a feature film of that's a fact he had already made, your, made a feature film called the game that had received distribution but didn't get much attention and by his telling of it he kind of got screwed out yeah in a way weiler had already lived and worked in la and had moved back to pennsylvania as i understand it but they wanted to make a movie together avalos wanted to make another feature weiler was on board they didn't have any money they didn't have the money to shoot on film they didn't have the money to use actors so what they did was they borrowed equipment and they raised some money Mm. uh the budget of this film came to nine hundred dollars that's insane that's one-sixth almost that's less than one-sixth of the budget for ufo abduction (laughs) (laughs) and while we may not think this is a great film it certainly looks a lot more professional yeah it it is a good representation of how far ahead technology jumped in terms of being able to film shit on your own because yeah it does it does look significantly better than ufo abduction Yes, it does. It's better assembled. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's more of a movie. You know, UFO right. abduction kind of again, it was purely a found footage narrative film so that it had this, you know, there's there's limitations to that. Right. You can't 
there's not going to be much editing. Right. There's not going to be much assembly. There's not going to you can't use non-diegetic music or voiceovers or things like that. Yeah. You're you're very confined to w- within a very tight space when you're making a purely right. found footage film as opposed to this which was more of a pseudo documentary. It's it's interesting how this movie and Blair Witch kind of reflect a reversal of the relationship between Cannibal Holocaust and UFO abduction in that Cannibal Holocaust was a pseudo-doc with a found footage component at the core of it, and UFO Abduction was a purely found footage movie. Last Broadcast is a pseudo-doc with a found footage component at the core of it, and Blair Witch is a purely found footage movie. Some would say that decision was influenced by Last Broadcast, but we'll get to that. Right. So, inspired by news tabloids like Hard Copy and Supernatural shows like In Search Of, Lance Weiler and Stefan Avalos, and, and Weiler himself says that he was influenced by David Holtzman's diary. The I, Just the idea of watching a movie and then finding out at the very end that it's not real, right? that it's all been scripted and staged. They wanted to do something like that. So they came up with this idea that's actually great. We'll get get into the premise (laughs) in a second. But they chose for their setting, since they didn't have money for sets or, you know, a lot of locations, let's go shoot in the wilderness. Right. So we got cameras in the wilderness, baby. We got got computers in the woods. They go to the Pine Barrens, since they're from Bucks County, Pennsylvania. They go to the nearby Pine Barrens. Now, the Pine Barrens is the quintessential American wilderness. It is a very dense forest stretching across seven counties in the state of New Jersey. That's pretty huge. That's big, yeah. And it's what's even, I think, more perfect about it is that although Philadelphia and New York City, both big cities, they're right there. And there are two busy interstate highways running through the Pine Barrens. It still remains largely undeveloped and undisturbed and is very rural. Is it protected by the government in there some is, way? Yeah, it's a national forest. Part of that has to do with, I mean, there has been, I want to say, some kind of ore thing, mining uh, in the past. I'm sure. There's a whole long history yeah. of the Pine Barrens. Yeah. But... It does re it is it does help recharge a seventeen trillion gallon aquifer. Oh wow. That provides some of the purest water in the country. So there it's got that going for it. Yeah. Nice. And it's also infested by the Jersey Devil. Yes. It also has <laughs> the Jersey Devil in it. Which is its own fun. This is a wilderness. This is an actual wilderness. This is the fucking woods. It's crazy, too, because people will say, because I lived in New Jersey for two years, and people will be like, ah, oh, New Jersey. It's like, they think it's all Atlantic City or right. Trenton. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, man, there are some backwards hill folk of course. in New oh, Jersey, yeah. and that's the Pine Barrens. And like any rural area, it has its own monster in it. It has its own folklore, and that's yeah. the Jersey Devil, who has its own wonderful uh, story that fits into the idea of media right, and folklore and myth. The story of the Jersey Devil kind of varies a little bit, but the, the usual story is that this woman named Mother Leeds had 12 children. She was pregnant with her 13th child and frustrated by having to give birth a 13th time. So already that here would we be have, frustrating. Yes, this is a horror movie indictment of <laughs> you know the puritanical attitudes about birth control at the time. Right. She said, "This child will be the devil." And you know, when you say that, Whoops. of course, the child becomes the, child the devil. Becomes the devil. That's how you do it. <laughs> and it was born as a monster. Now the appearance of the Jersey Devil varies from tale to tale and from era to era, but most accounts say that it's a bipedal creature 
with a goat's head and bat wings and claws. This is going to become significant in a moment. (laughs) And the origins of the legend, like a lot of folklore at the time, are all over the place. Some stories say that the woman's name was Jane Leeds. Others say that her name was Deborah Leeds, who, according to documents, it was actually a real woman who had at least 12 children. Oh. The name Leeds could be referring to the family, or it could have just been taken from the nearby town of Leeds Point in New Jersey. Right. So there's that's that kind seems of, lazy though. Yeah, right? Yeah. The yeah. fucking like What should we name the family? What should, uh, what should we name Le- the fucking Leeds? Team? Yeah. Uh <laughs> But it is it is widely accepted now that the legend itself is a product of religious and political disputes in the area, namely most significantly disputes between Benjamin Franklin and his rival almanac publisher Daniel Leeds. Benjamin ah. Franklin, of course, at the time, published Poor Richard's Almanac. Right. Daniel Leeds published a rival almanac. Daniel Leeds was always picking fights, I guess, with Benjamin Franklin. He was into the occult and astrology. He hated Quakers. He had some strong <laughs> anti-Quaker thing going on. And Ben Franklin loves the Quakers, I guess. Also, Daniel Leeds was staunchly pro-monarchist, ah. which is not going to sit well with Franklin. Aiding the theory that this is where the legend came from uh, in that Benjamin Franklin started publishing stories about the Leeds devil to uh, parody Daniel Leeds to present him as some monstrous creature obsessed with the occult. But aiding this theory is the fact that the Leeds family crest, which started, it was printed on the almanac. The Leeds family crest was printed on the almanac beginning in 1728, but that crest is a wyvern, which is a creature that looks a lot like what the Jersey Devil is supposed to look oh, like. Oh, wow. It's got wings, it's got claws, it's got kind of a elongated neck and and What weird a weird head. choice for your family crest. Yeah, right? Kind of like, yeah. are you fucking Dracula over here? What are you, Yeah. What, what should we doing? put on the crest? How about that demon baby she had not too long ago? <laughs> yeah. But, it's a good representation of us. But like all regional folklore, eventually it kind of gets out of hand becomes a thing unto itself. I mean, it's funny there that we already have this idea that this monster was born from media fights. Right. (laughs) You know? But, of course, at some point, there were huge sightings all over the place. Experts now think that these sightings were because of misidentification of Pine Barrens fauna, like the Sandhill Crane. Which also comes up in the Mothman Yes, yes, that's another story. Yeah, it's another one for the Mothman. The, it's blamed on a sandhill crane yeah. often. But again, these stories come about because the the area is dangerous. Right. Uh, at the time, there were highwaymen, gangs of bandits robbing people in the Pine Barrens. There were the Pine Barrens residents themselves known probably not to flatteringly as pineys. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you have a group like that that's going to have an uneasy relationship with the outside world, well, they're going to want to keep outsiders out, and the outsiders themselves are going to want to explain the weirdness of these people, so monster stories. Right. In 1909, the story became huge, and you started having sightings of it all over the place. Hoaxes. So we get into another interesting recurring theme in the subject of found footage and folklore and media. Right. This idea of hoaxes. We had footprints pointed out that it was later revealed to be altered horse hooves. And at the time, the Philadelphia Zoo actually offered a $10,000 reward for a live Jersey Devil. (laughs) And Norman Jeffries, who is a publicist, so right there, red flag. Oh, yeah. For a Philadelphia museum, 
found a kangaroo, put wings on it. I mean, he didn't find it. He ordered it somewhere. You know, he didn't. He wasn't walking around the Pine Barrens and, hey, there's a fucking kangaroo. <laughs> but he got a kangaroo, put wings on it, and advertised it as the Jersey Devil to boost museum attendance. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so already, before television and at the birth of film itself, we have this story that is rooted in the questions of the ethics of media. Right. That's now become this huge thing, complete with hoaxes. Right. During that craze, sightings were reported not just in the Pine Barrens, not just in New Jersey, but in Delaware and in Maryland, which Interesting. <laughs> has some crossover with another film. Absolutely. So this was what they chose for their subject was the Jersey Devil, which is serendipitously or deliberately an interesting choice for a monster in the woods in this wilderness of the digital age. Yeah. Especially for a film that, as we will see, is more concerned with commenting on the media than it is with telling a horror story. Yeah. It's a murder mystery, essentially, this film. Oh, for sure. So the last broadcast is a pseudo-documentary, and it starts with, somewhere around the beginning, it starts with this this quote from the character David Lee, who's played by David Beard, who is a filmmaker. It so he says, says that. Credit, right. And already, we're right. talking this line about the 24-hour news cycle. We're talking about the digital revolution. And we're talking about murders right. that happened in the actual wilderness. With a red herring. <laughs> yes. In the form of Jim's, this character, Jim Seward. So this says it all. Cameras in the woods, computers in the wilderness. This is what happens when the light of interconnectivity and access to knowledge is pointed in the dark corners of the world. We see monsters. And then we get our pitchforks and our torches in the information village. Right. The title card keeps kayfabe. Factor fiction is then... So when he talks about the factor fiction, he's talking about this cable access show this fictional cable access show called factor fiction right which is very much a amateur version of in search of with maybe a little jerry springer thrown in and they're trying to do an early version of an internet broadcast yes from the woods from the woods <laughs> which is still difficult to this day yes it's fun though because when they start to double back and give us more information about Factor Fiction, which is this cable access show run by these two guys, Locus Wheeler and Stephen <laughs> Avcast, who are played by the filmmakers Lance Weiler and Stefan right. Avalos. And they're great. I think they're great as these two characters. Yeah, as, they are good. As Locus and, and Stephen. But they're not presented as professionals or leading cutting-edge right. tech wizards. They're presented as these passionate, if opportunistic, amateurs with access to this new media thanks to the democratization of prosumer production tech. Right. And the, the, level, the newly level playing field of the internet and how you can get lost in it. You know, we, we, we introduce these two yahoos with their expensive equipment, and then we get this character, Jim Seward. Jim is an intense yeah. character. Jim is a fascinating character to me. Because in a way, he is the prototype for a reality TV star. Yeah. He's very handsome and seems like maybe the most put together of the bunch at first. Yes. And then reveals himself to be quite the, quite the rage-aholic. Yeah. But it's also like through this footage, they, they, I mean, the, the film also like really greatly uses this like creepy footage. It always like freeze frames when he's making an intense, scary face, yeah, yeah. which is great because that's what, you know, the news tabloids yeah. do. 
But they present character witnesses in the film are his landlord and his child psychologist. And they kind of paint this picture of this guy who was into the internet and magic. Right. And I think that's a brilliant pairing because it's presented, the internet is presented as this interest that people don't understand the same as magic is. Right. Where it's like, oh, he's into the internet. <laughs> like witchcraft? Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, is he doing yeah. the dark shit? Yeah, this, it was so, or, and I mean, this came out in like 98, but yes, it would have been made a little bit before that. And yeah. the internet was so young then. Yeah, it was made in 97 and it's actually, it's made about the murders that supposedly took place in 95. 95, right. Um, with, you know, show, talking about the evolution of the show dating back to 94. Right. So it is, it is at a time when the internet's very young. Yeah. And very like kind of dicey. Almost like a wilderness. Yeah. (laughs) God damn it. (laughs) I really regret Like the one depicted in M. Night Shyamalan's The Village. Carry on. I regret everything. (laughs) Anyway, this idea that both interests are harmless but have a sinister potential edge to them, magic right and the internet i think is great it posits that there is a right and wrong way to use these kind of interests and it maybe has potential shades of the west memphis three case oh sure to it which was uh like right around that time right was yeah it was early 90s yeah 94 yeah yeah so this is shades of the west memphis three thing like i I, I, it's interesting how i haven't seen any talk about that being an influence on this oh yeah because that was a real life case that happened in 94 but did it get that widespread attention before the documentary? Like, I don't remember hearing about the West Memphis Three until all the documentaries about them started coming. Or was that the year the documentary came out? So the murder itself took place in 93. Uh, so did the arrest. So they probably wouldn't have been too aware of... Because Paradise Lost, I don't... The documentary, I don't think... It didn't, like, immediately come out. They were in prison for a while before it came out yeah so the album free the west memphis three was released in 2000 i mean there were writings in support of them in the two yeah i guess the attention yeah that's why the documentary happened because there wasn't oh my god no the documentary was 96 oh okay yeah so this this documentary about the west memphis three had already been made and released right and it's i mean shades of black magic pardon the rhetoric but a witch trial you know like in the woods you know this stuff is kind of there right a little bit i mean it's not super parallel but the connections can be made there's parallels there so i just think it's interesting that that's never been that i haven't seen anything about that anyway so from there we go back to you know the history of the factor fiction show it's pretty cool there's like funny footage of the cable access episodes and again they're not presented as visionaries or innovators they're presented as you know, hobbyist dorks with dumb dreams who just kind of stumbled upon this big idea that first starts with them deciding to... We don't have to go through the whole No, 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 we don't. Okay. Okay. So anyway, all of the fact or fiction stuff is great. I I like the cable access footage. I like all that shit. But where we start to get to the meat of this is when they decide to employ IRC to speak to their viewers and to get ideas from their viewers. Uh, IRC right. Internet Relay Chat. It was developed in 1988 uh, as a replacement for multi-user talk. It predates the internet as we know it. It relates to Usenet in the sense that it was actually intended as an extension of the BBS uh-huh. and to allow news 
in use in the Usenet format, right. uh, and then basically they just kind of stopped with the chat idea, right? Uh, and that sort of took over. And the thing about IRC and its relationship in this film, but also the landscape of digital media at the time is that here we go again it's it's the woods <laughs> right it's it could be anyone behind that screen name it could be anyone typing there it could be yeah. the boogeyman it could be the pied piper you know it could be a hacker right or an anarchist you know or a murderer so it kind of ties into these i the idea that this technology like magic can be misused. Now, right. In the context of the film, what it does is it actually gives us our first example of found footage employed in this film. Because what they do there is they show us the unused footage from episode 22. Of the fact or fiction show. Of the fact or fiction show to illustrate the character tensions and everything as the reason for them going to this IRC viewer suggestion format. And that's when the viewer D suggests they go and do an episode about the Pine Barrens right. and the Jersey Devil. And even here, it's a clusterfuck. They don't have the proper expertise. They don't have the resources. It's yeah. a young technology. So when they start talking about webcasting and simulcasting, which is, as you said, difficult now, Yeah, these two yahoos <clears throat> want to do this on this grand scale. And it sort of is does have this quality of... Reading from the Necronomicon. Right. This quality of stumbling upon some dark forces. Right. This, right. Yeah, this idea of, like, we're going to do this big thing that's super ambitious of us, but we don't understand what the consequences are. A cautionary tale. Yes. It's, it's the monster in the woods. It's right. the webcast. Anyway, without getting into the entire film. Right. What strikes me about this movie is how well it's assembled, is how well it's put together to actually look like a documentary. Uh, the, the crime scene footage stuff, the voiceover use, the narration. I mean, the narration gets a little eh, because it's that filmmaker yeah. character. I mean, in a way, it has that David Holtzman's diary thing and that it's a satire of the personal narrative documentary, and you can talk about the idea of documentarians influencing what they're observing simply by observing it. Yeah. Yada, yada, yada. Gonzo journalism, Hunter S. Thompson, whatever. Gross. <laughs> How do you feel about the film? What are your takeaways from it? It's, I sometimes, I, I feel this way about a lot of older films in that it's a good snapshot of the times and it's interesting as kind of a historical footnote. But I can't picture a world where someone would be like, what movie should I watch tonight? And I would say the last broadcast <laughs> because it's it's almost like to me, a movie like this is like a demo version of a song in a box set where mm. you listen to it and you it's cool to hear it for the novelty and hear what it was before it was what they actually wanted yeah. it to be. And it's it's cool as like a sketch of what would become because it, it I mean, it did like Blair Witch Project came right after this. Yes. And it's it's interesting in that way. But it's I don't think a like the ending is deplorable. <sighs> the ending's a mess. It's so bad. The ending is a is a real disaster. And it's a shame because if someone were to ask me, I would never recommend this as a horror film. 
Right. I would recommend it as an interesting curiosity yeah. to someone studying documentary film. I think it's I think that's where its power is. It's clearly it's interesting it's interesting because where's a dollar I can put in the jar? <laughs> what what gets me about this movie is the significance of it. Yeah. The, what it meant for independent film distribution, which is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> what it meant for independent film distribution, but even that, it wasn't that groundbreaking. It was groundbreaking stuff they were doing, but it didn't seem to leave an immediate lasting legacy. Right. Because it still wasn't a trend yet. Not just in the, the, the style of film they were making, you know, found footage component pseudo docs. Sure. But in the idea of distribution and projection and exhi- exhibition, you know, it was it would be a long time before HDNet and day and date kind of stuff were right. really commonplace. And I think that it broke the mold in a lot of ways. But then people just went back to using the mold. Like, yeah. Well, we'll address that in a moment. Yeah, I wouldn't. I don't think I would recommend it as a horror movie. But I would recommend it as if you like documentary films and you're interested in narrative pseudo docs or or fabrications of non-narrative films. I think this is good because these guys weren't documentary filmmakers. Stefan Avalos only recently made his first feature documentary. But it's made when you watch it, if you've studied documentary film, it addresses a lot of it hits a lot of those yeah. documentary beats very well until it breaks the it's i don't know how to say this because in the end it doesn't break the fourth wall it like rebuilds the fourth wall around itself kind of yeah because it suddenly isn't found footage anymore and it suddenly isn't a doc anymore it's now a narrative film that we're watching that fucks with the chronology of what we've already seen and honestly kind of undermines a lot of the points it was making about the power of media and some of the more interesting aspects like this idea that Jim Seward who is a prototype reality TV star the guy in the film is studying acting and magic and uses his acting and his magic experience to do some weird, dumb street magic shit, some like David Blaine oh, stuff, yeah. and appear to be a psychic. Like he sells himself fraudulently right. as a psychic using his magic experience and, and yeah. tactics, but to fulfill his ambitions as an actor. He's a he's a fame seeker. He's yeah. He's someone who gets on and reality TV already existed at the time, and we already had the real world, but this type of personality. Right. Wouldn't become an archetype for some time. It's a prescient movie. Yeah. Like it saw a lot of things coming and it was Mm -hmm. accurate about it. You know, going back to the wilderness thing, it seemed like the real point they were trying to drive home was that the internet, you're opening yourself up to the unknown. Yeah. When you look into the abyss, the abyss looks into you kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And. I like I get what they were trying to they were trying to kind of imply for most of the movie that it was Jim Seward who represented that unknown mm-hmm. that you let in yes. because you were this interested in doing this thing on the internet when it's actually at the end you realize it's not him but it's still the same idea because the, the yeah it tries implication to- I got was that the guy making the film maybe is the one who sent them who maybe suggested yes, absolutely. go to I think, uh, the not Pine just, Barrens. That's, I think, almost explicated. Yeah. Not quite, but almost. Right. That, so they still deliver the same message. Yes, but it's 
it's a shift in what the message actually means. Yeah. From something kind of distinct and interesting to something a little more nebulous and cheap. Yeah. Because then when you find out that, oh, this guy set the whole thing up. Yeah. It, it would have been scarier almost if Jim If it had just turned out he was the one the that killer. did it. Yeah. Well, even when it's moving away from him and trying to proclaim his innocence, not to mention the motives of the actual killer not making any sense when you take into account, okay, he sent them out there, he had them do all this stuff, but you, then why is he mailing evidence to himself and then right. sharing that evidence with someone else like it, and being that cautionary and scared of the internet but also tech savvy enough to jump in and irc and suggest someone go to the pine barrens that yeah that those seem like conflicting ideas Yeah, and it's weirder too because he's then pushing them to walk this path down this new form of broadcast the webcasting the simulcasting right the idea that like okay you're going to i'm going to send you guys out to this new thing so that i can then comment on it with an outdated form of media like it, <laughs> right like it just yeah. doesn't really make a lot of sense and it undermines i think its own points and even there's a moment where it seems like they're trying to allude to the fact that there might be something supernatural involved in these deaths Right. That's my favorite part, obviously. Yeah. Because it's like, oh, shit, there might be a Jersey Devil here. Yeah, I did. Like, we keep mentioning how bad the ending is, but I did like the... I like how the limitations of technology at the time played into the timeline of the movie, mm -hmm. yeah. where they're trying to get that piece of footage restored that might show the killer oh that and it is, takes like three days yeah. to render <laughs> like That's that great. that was the horror movie to me i was like three days i get mad if it takes a podcast 45 seconds that's great i really do like the pacing of that of because they that. just keep showing it with a little more detail mm -hmm. filled in but then when they show the whole thing you're mm -hmm. like ah well you, you don't even have time to go ah because then immediately <laughs> It cuts to this dumb bullshit. It feels like the last broadcast to me feels like one of those 70s bands, like television, like one of those bands that nobody knows, but everyone who knows them is like, yeah, well, that's why I started a band because I saw this band. They're yeah. so great. But yeah. then if you're just a casual music fan, you might go back and listen to that album and go, what? Yeah. Like, this is why you started a band? Like, it but it seems does like, contain some things that right. are like, wow, that's cool. Yeah, like, and things people build up. Like, this seems like the kind of movie that some, the right person saw at the right time. Mm -hmm. And because, like, the Blair Witch Project comes next, this movie had a $900 budget. The Blair Witch is just someone going, what if the last broadcast had... A $10,000 budget. <laughs> well, the things I like about this film, aside from the sort of time capsule quality of it that right. I really enjoy, are done better in other films. Not just Blair Witch. Lake Mungo yeah. has a lot of the stuff that I really admire. That just that idea of like, this feels like an actual documentary. Like has, as someone right. who like studied documentary and made a couple documentaries, like I can watch this and be like, oh, these people know their shit. Yeah. Uh, so it's... It's been done better, but it does have, there's this great moment in it where they're talking about the 45 minute gap in the IRC 
And the, oh, uh, yeah. the, the cop is like, 45 minutes, that's an awfully long time to not be responding to people on the internet. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> No cop what would you, say that. Yeah, yeah. Like, what, what are you, somebody's significant other mad that they didn't get back to your text quick enough? Like, there's some stuff. Is there a Jersey Devil over there? <laughs> there's some dated stuff like that that kind of feels great. And some, the, I do like the reconstruction foot, the reconstructed footage thing. I do like some of the more on-the-nose commentary about the state of media and journalism ethics yeah. and things like that. Like, it's... It's very interesting, and when you take it with this context of what was going on at the time and how really how impressive it was to be the first feature-length narrative film right. shot and edited entirely in digital video using quote-unquote amateur technology and equipment, that's some pretty impressive stuff. Oh, yeah, for sure. So what happened with this film? <laughs> why didn't it become, of the two, why didn't it become the movie that we talk about? I mean, I wanted to talk about it on this podcast with a focus simply because I like to talk about the movie that fewer people are talking about. <laughs> sure. Uh, just because that's who I am. But after they finished making it for $900, <laughs> it's still, still nuts to me. You know, shot on a VX1000, which was a camera introduced in 1995 and then was obsolete just two years later in 2000 by the VX2000. It was edited using Adobe Premiere 4.2 and After Effects. Nice. Avalos says he used 4.2 because he wanted to an approximate, he wanted to approximate like a 24p kind of look, oh, which yeah. was not a thing yet. Like that yeah. wouldn't happen until the the I guess the I believe the Panasonic AGDVX one hundred, but they they kind of they believed in this film, you know they yeah made it real cheap. They did it outside of any kind of not just outside of a studio system, but outside of any known indie system at right. the time. They created fake news websites to promote this story they fabricated for it to make the murders look like they were a real thing yeah. using their fabricated crime photos and such. They they linked them all together because, again, this was the internet back when it was just sophisticated enough to sell some shit. Right, But you right. really couldn't verify anything. Right. There was no Snopes. <laughs> you couldn't yeah. Snopes last broadcast at the time, I don't believe. Watch someone get back to me like, ah, Snopes was actually a Usenet <laughs> board in 1987. <laughs> In May of 1998, it started playing festivals, including the Chicago Underground F Film Festival, where it won the Silver Jury Award. It was under consideration at one point for a midnight slot at Sundance in 98. Both Avalos and Weiler went to Sundance that year with the film. They were, this is crazy. So they had a digital video projector and a hard drive that the film was on, that they carried around with them to film festivals, which is commonplace now. Right. Even print traffic at film festivals largely works in hard drives now as opposed to cans and reels. Right. But at the time, that was not a thing. Yeah. So they're just going around these film festivals with a backpack full of a hard drive and a video projector. Yeah. And they took that to Sundance, pretty certain they were going to get a midnight slot. They passed out flyers of the missing factor fiction guys to kind of get this word of mouth going, something that we would see again later. Yes. But it got pulled. It got pulled from the midnight slot. This is the first moment where the conspiracy theory kind of starts in because I guess Jeff Pearson, who 
I believe that was his name, was on the Sundance board or something, also was uh, in with the Haxton guys. Oh, really? Because I believe at the time, Phase 1 and Phase 2 of the Blair Witch Project was already underway. Oh. And so there's this theory that it was pulled because they knew Blair Witch was going to be the next year, and they wanted ah. they wanted it to get a big distribution deal. Interesting. And that last broadcast, we heard those chances. That's one of the theories. Yeah. Anyway... So because it didn't play that Sundance slot, it did not get a lot of distribution attention. It did get some. They turned some offers down, but you know, they didn't get the big deal offer from anyone. Right. So they were DIY about it. And what they did was they decided to self-release it. Avalos formed a company called Wavelength, and that company then partnered with Texas Instruments that had just developed the DLP, the company DPI, and with the company Laurel Space, which was a satellite company, to project the movie in theaters in five cities, Philadelphia, Portland, Providence, Austin, and Minneapolis, on October 23rd, 1998. The film was transmitted to a geosynchronous satellite and then downloaded to hard drives that's crazy and then video projected using the the texas instruments projector in these theaters it was the first film to be projected via satellite first feature to be projected via satellite theatrically wow so that's this sort of diy attitude about it is very impressive now i don't know i saw some place that it had grossed twelve thousand. forbes had it at eighteen thousand. the total grossing i guess worldwide uh after everything comes to five million which for a nine hundred dollar movie could do worse, yeah. Yeah, you could do worse. Even the eighteen thousand is good. Yeah, even the twelve thousand is good. That's <laughs> yeah. still more than twelve times your yeah. you know what you made it for. In addition to the satellite screenings, it also streamed on IFC's broadband site. Would it have been streaming video then? It there was I think there's always been some degree of streaming video. The film was available yeah. via IFC's website. And that's we're talking two hundred and fifty thousand people, I think. Right. It was made available to through that. So that's a lot of very impressive stuff. Yeah, for sure. But it's not the movie we talk about. <laughs> right. <laughs> when we talk about the first found footage movie. I mean, people still insist that it was ripped off. Stefan Avalos does say that he knew that Daniel Merrick and Eduardo Sanchez were fans of his movie. I don't know if that's true. There's a story that they were sitting on an airplane together once and ended up talking about their film, I, I believe, maybe after Cannes or after Sundance. Oh, wow. But at the same time, you can't make the last broadcast and go, okay, no one ever improve on this idea. And you also can't, when you look at the two films, there's no world where the last broadcast is going to do better than the Blair Witch. No. You know, it, I'm sure there there's influences there, but that's, you know, that's going to happen, baby. That's the business, yeah. baby. That's, it's just, you know. It's called show business, not show friendship. <laughs> you should have taken some of that 12 grand and made a sequel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You could have taken 10 grand, matched the Blair Witch's budget, and then you still would have made a minor profit of $1,100. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So who knows? Maybe Blair Witch stole this movie. Maybe. There are points of intersection where you could say, okay, I see what they did here. So Blair Witch Project, I don't want to go too far into the making of it. There's a really great series. Everyone knows about the Blair Everybody Witch Project. Everybody knows about it. Especially if you're listening to this podcast. Yeah. 
go read Ben Rock's chronicle of it at Dread Central. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it's a multi-part. You can watch the Library of Congress panel, too, that's very interesting, with Eduardo Sanchez and Julia American and uh, Mike yeah. Manello. What the Blair Witch did that last broadcast didn't do... I mean, they had a team of three historical fabricators constructing the mythology for this thing. Yes, it was based on the Bell Witch of Tennessee, which is an interesting story. Right. But the Blair Witch... They created their own they created monster. Their own monster. Basically. They created their own story for it. And if you watch The Curse of the Blair Witch, which was the promotional pseudo-doc for Sci-Fi Channel... And actually, here's where some of the contention comes in. Initially, when Blair Witch Project was being made, they had approached it to be a pseudo-documentary. It was supposed to be the found footage cut in with these pseudo-documentary sequences of interviews and dramatizations. A lot of it ended up being the Curse of the Blair Witch documentary. What they say, the last broadcast side of apologists says is that Blair Witch saw last broadcast and said oh we have to make our movie different than theirs what well that's not filmmakers say is that the pseudo documentary sequences kept getting in the way of the tension of the found footage either way they were right (laughs) yeah it's (laughs) not a bad thing if they saw the last broadcast and go oh well we should do it a little different we should Mm -hmm. just directly rip that off and i can see how like i think documentary clips in interspersed in the blair witch would be very distracting because that's a movie that works because of the tension and just the palpable dread that comes from really minor things like a pile of rocks appearing outside the tent and you're like oh shit Mm -hmm. if that cut to a news footage about fucking rock piles it would take it would definitely take away from that movie i think yeah it's absolutely right to say now look i love the curse of the blair witch pseudo doc i i think it's fun i think it's great i think i was able to appreciate blair witch project as much as i was right because i had seen that but also they were right to cut it out of that film. Oh, absolutely. Because otherwise, what do you have? You know, you have something that's been done, not just in the last broadcast, but in Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah. And been done recently, like within the past year, when you're, if you're talking about if you're when talking the about Blair Witch last comes broadcast. Out. Yeah. yeah. In addition, found footage as a narrative device, you know, we're talking about documentary, which is a non-narrative style here, but... As a narrative device in horror, found footage had already been used in mainstream movies. Right. Peeping Tom, 1960. Friggin' Aliens. Yeah. You want to talk about found footage? The sequence where they're watching the head cams of the Space Marines in Aliens. Yeah. Like, it's, it's been done. Right. To take the UFO abduction approach and just say, nope, we're going straight found footage with this. And we're going to create the rest of the idea of this film outside of the context of the movie itself and we're going to do it in the surrounding media out in this woods of the new media we're going to do it on the internet we're going to do it in flyers we're going to do it in books we're going to do it in word of mouth yeah i mean the first time i heard of blair witch someone was saying oh my god you like horror movies have you heard of the movie that's real? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, year, you know, months before it was released. First time I saw Blair Witch, I thought it was real. A lot of people did. Yeah. And I, I liked it so much. We actually had to 
rescheduled a recording of this because I lost one of my contact lenses and didn't have backups <laughs> and I only had one eye. I liked Blair Witch so much that in between the first and second time I saw it in theaters, I found out or realized it was fake, lost a contact lens and wouldn't be able to replace it until Monday, but still went and saw Blair Witch again with one <laughs> functioning eye because I liked it that much. The first time I saw it, I had been excited for it for a long time, and then I was at a video store that I went to a lot, and I was renting a bunch of horror movies, and the video store employee was like... Yeah, you got like a bootleg copy yeah. of it, so like this, two days before it came out. This guy was like, you like horror movies. You know, have you heard about the Blair Witch Project? And I was like, yeah, dude, I'm so excited. Yeah. And he was just like, I know someone who worked on it. You want a copy? And I went to his apartment, and it was like a drug... He lived like a, an iguana in an aquarium, <laughs> like a drug dealer, you know? Of course. Or some kind of lizard. I don't Maybe it was a snake. I don't remember. <laughs> I just went and waited, and he made a copy of it for me. And I was like, I'm not watching this until after I've seen it in the theater. I couldn't hold out. I watched it. Yeah. And I think what I saw was the Sundance cut, because it was a tiny bit different than the theatrical oh, really? release version. But yeah, I watched it on VHS two days before, and then I still went and saw it in the theater, and then saw it again in the theater the next day. Yeah. Like, I I saw that movie so many times. Yeah, I mean, no matter what influences the two might share or anything else, that's really the defining difference between The Blair Witch and The Last Broadcast, Mm -hmm. is that The Blair Witch is just a very well-executed film. Yes, it's, it's a good movie. Outside of genre, it's not like it's not just a good found footage movie. It's not a good horror movie. It's just a good movie. It's entertaining. Mm-hmm. And the production of it was experimental in a way that Last Broadcast was not. Last right. Broadcast was playing with all these new t- tools and with all this new media stuff, but they made a very... They tried to make the new tools in the new media the monster mm-hmm. instead of just a vehicle for delivering yes. the story. But Blair Witch Project... Blair Witch Project used, just utilized the tools. It just utilized the tools, but it also was very experimental in how it was made, much more so than last broadcast, just in the process of using improv, not just to audition, not just for the film, but their auditions were improv auditions. Right. And then the whole idea of just dropping notes for the actors, letting the actors film all of the action without the directors being present to call the shots. I mean, they were there hiding in the woods and shit. It's a riskier, what they did technically in the production aspect was riskier than what last broadcast was doing. Right. And I think it paid off more. Oh, for sure. Not just in the obvious ways. But yeah, as a film, it's more successful with that. And it's a horror story that trusts you as an audience to understand what it's saying without going, hey, do you get it? Yeah, it it was what I really respected about it the first time I saw it. It It felt like the kind of movie where... If you didn't find it scary, I was just kind of like, oh, what's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. Like, like, do you just not understand things? Or yeah. like, is it not scary if there's not a monster? Do you need shit spoon fed to you? Like, it felt like it felt like getting that movie and being scared by that movie was like it put you in a group mm-hmm. that kind of understood horror movies a little better than everyone else. Well, yes. But I also think there's an aspect of what it says about you, your willingness to meet something, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of debate now. There's a lot of attention 
in the last 20 years that has been paid to in the discussion of Blair Witch Project that has been paid to this idea of, well, now you couldn't do that. Right. Because no one's going to believe it's real now. And I, in the Library of Congress, Congress panel, Mike Manello said something interesting about, not, I'm not going to quote him verbatim, but to paraphrase, it was something along the lines of, it doesn't matter if it's real or not. It's not it doesn't matter if you think it's real or not. That's not the point, because people are still willing to play along with these things. And that's what's important about it, is that right. it's not whether or not I believe, I knew going into that movie that it wasn't real. But yeah. I had also watched the documentary, you know, read all the stuff online, gotten into the fake articles. You get involved, you get engaged, and it's the same thing as going into a haunted house. Yeah. You know, if you're the kind of person who goes to the haunted house and is like, fuck this, this isn't real, it's fake. Yeah, why are you going to then a haunted house? Then why are house? you here? It's in a strip mall, you piece <laughs> of shit. <laughs> yeah. Of course get it's not real. into it. Yeah. Get into it. Have a good time with it. And if that's not what you're into, fine. Yeah. And it... Like it's, I always bring up the pile of rocks in that movie because that I've heard that so many times where people are like, no, it's just rocks. It's like, motherfucker, if you were in that tent and unzipped it and got out and someone had placed a neatly (laughs) assembled pile of rocks right outside your tent and then skedaddled, you'd be freaked the fuck out. Yeah. And if, if you can't understand that that kind of thing is scary, then this, yeah, this is not a, it's mm-hmm. not the movie for you. And horror movies in general probably just aren't going to yeah. be your thing. No. And the, cause that's what it, you need to be able to just go along with it. Right. And that's the thing is that, yes, in, in a horror real situation, movies require some empathy. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to put yourself in that person's position yeah. and go, well, how would I, like, even though you know what you're seeing is fake, how would that make you feel? Mm-hmm. And that's like, that's what you go to a horror movie for. Well, and in the in the subject of specifically the Blair Witch Project, you know, they were more concerned with realism than with anything else. And I don't think, you know, it's said that, they, well, they had such a small budget so they couldn't have any monster effects. I don't know that they would have gone with them even if they did because what they've said is that on their first edit of it, when they were assembling all the footage, and then they decided to go strictly with the found footage as opposed to right. this you know, constructed pseudo-doc around it, they said that their first pass at the assembly was just going through all the footage and cutting anything that didn't feel real. Anything in the performances that felt artificial, anything in the action that felt false, get rid of it. Yeah. And thereby, you know, going with these things like the pile of rocks or the stick figures hanging, they're these small little things that you can believe... Right. Would be out there. And even if you were out there apropos of nothing that we've talked about, that shit would scare you. Yeah. If it was there and then yeah, if it wasn't there and then suddenly was. Hanging like, tree stick figures were anywhere. Yeah. There's an artist. I think it's, I hope it's an artist <laughs> going around cities right now. I'll show you one of the pictures after we're done because they're popping up in my neighborhood. But just putting these creepy doll faces everywhere. Oh, gosh. And sometimes they're hot pink. Sometimes they're like this weird gray that looks aged. And I first noticed them. There's an underpass right over here next to my apartment. There's a bench on the other side of that overpass. And one day there were just two creepy doll faces (laughs) on it. And now there's another one on this government building down here, like almost at ground level. Oh, man. And there's no explanation. There's no plaque that says this is to commemorate suffering of children in Syria. It's just a fucking doll face. It's there. 
the first time I saw that, I was like, I've walked by this bench so many times, and those fucking things were not there. Why are they there now? That's great. Because even in this age where we feel like we've gotten through the wilderness of you know the information age right and that we and that we're so cynical about everything look at the clown stuff yeah from 2 years ago we still don't know what that was about no clue but when it started you know everyone's ah well it's probably promoting a movie that's how cynical we are now is that because of right. things like cloverfield the blair witch project the ring do you, do you know about some of the grassroots marketing for the ring yeah where they would just leave these videotapes right. places like can you imagine not <laughs> knowing and you find that and you watch it like but even now that we know all these things about this and we're so cynical and we say oh well this is probably some arg component some some viral marketing campaign for some movie or tv show right well the fucking clowns we don't know with yeah. those doll faces, you don't know. No, and I've Googled it and all of the articles, because they've turned up in Denver, mm-hmm. Chicago, now they're turning up in LA, and all of the articles are like, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know what the, like there's one guy who claims he saw the artist doing it in that the guy said it's to bring attention to the suffering of children in Syria. Mm. And it's like- Maybe but that's true. How does it do <laughs> But yeah, how does it do that? Why is there nothing attached to it to tell us that that's the point? Yeah. And it's, it's I I took I tweeted it, I posted it on Facebook, and there were people who were like, "Oh yeah, I've seen these in fucking West Hollywood. They're showing up everywhere." And that kind of like that's almost when information becomes so available, you almost need little shit mm-hmm. like that to scare you. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. it's and and that's what Well, it's that idea of a fa- it's, there's a familiarity, right? But it's without context, so it's still the unknown. So it it triggers something in you, right? Like it's it's like um, you know, the dark side of that being the smiley face killer. Oh, that's one of my favorite stories. Holy shit! Yeah, yeah. We did uh, an episode of Pretty Scary about the smiley face killer. Oh, gosh, which yeah, that's. That's such an interesting case or not case because they haven't said it's actually real. Yeah. But it's so compelling. And I think the the fact that it's just smiley face graffiti that's kind of tying it all together, Mm -hmm. a thing you see, it's the most, it's the go-to thing. Mm -hmm. If you've never used a spray can, that's what you're probably going to do unless you write your name. Yeah. Like, but at the same time, what if all of these smiley faces you've been seeing out in the wild are places where dudes were murdered? Yeah. And even more horrifying, college-age white males. Eh, good. <laughs> uh, just, that's a terrible thing to say. But I mean, that's 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 also extreme. why I think maybe it's not real. Yeah. Because if that was if it, college-age well, white males were not, getting murdered. The thing is, right, they're not being murdered violently. Right. They're drowning. Right, or be well drowning, but also being thrown off bridges. Yeah, yeah. which yeah, that's a fascinating story. It really is. But that's sort of the dark side of this the cynicism that we have about these things. Right about like that's the real terror that's in the world, which may or may not even be a thing. Like it's that pattern recognition component of our brains, right? That's trying to connect the dots and make sense of this crazy world so that it can be comforted by that, but it's also just as terrifying as the chaos. Yeah. So to kind of bring that back a little bit, that's what these actors were going through 
when they were making Blair Witch Project. It was they were in an augmented reality game. Right. With these stick figures, with someone playing on three boom boxes out in the woods, the sounds of children playing. Like <laughs> they were signing up for an extreme haunt, essentially. Right. Before there was such a thing as an it was extreme basically haunt. Tropic Thunder. If you remember the yeah, opening yeah. of Tropic Thunder, <laughs> he's like, We're I'm just we're just gonna drop you in the woods and it's all gonna be real. Yeah. And then obviously that doesn't happen. But yeah, that's kind of the approach they took. Yeah, and they had some happy accidents in there. They had some not-so-happy accidents in the making, and then they had some happy accidents that ended up working out better than they thought. It just goes to show that, I mean, to repeat myself, I feel like they took bigger risks by doing something a little simpler. And then what we get, then, is an actual horror story with a real meaty mythology behind it. Yeah. And they utilized the website stuff in a way that I don't think Last Broadcast... I mean, Last Broadcast did... Right. But not to the degree. I mean, obviously, they also weren't purchased by Artisan. Right. You know. What the Blair Witch did really effectively was they kind of just gave you all of that website stuff and things really early. And then mm-hmm. it was just all movie from there. And yeah. I thought that was good. Yes. I, I thought agree. that was a good approach. Ultimately, what Blair Witch comes down to for me and how it sort of, I think, caps this context of looking at this phase of found footage horror is the line... It's very hard to get lost in America. Yeah. When she says that, and you, as the viewer, are going, it might be hard, but you did it. Like, you're fucking lost in America. And it's such a cocky thing to say in the woods. (laughs) Like, like, at that point, it's almost like the woods are going to go, okay, let's see. Yeah, and they do. Yeah. And that's, you know, for all the other experimental things that that movie does where it either intentionally or accidentally points to some of the same concerns about media and representation and observation. Yeah. There's a lot of that in there. Some of it's definitely intentional. Some of it's definitely accidental. You know, the, the no one is coming to get you, you know, no right. one is here to help you or the, I see why you like being on the other side of this camera, like stuff like that, whether it's intentional or accidental, that's the one to me that's most fitting for a discussion of the american media landscape yeah of the 90s and regardless of which one does which first or which one does which better both of these films came at a point when horror had become a thing of embarrassment right or had become a joke irrelevant it had become too real Yes. Like Silence of the Lambs, what's not particularly scary about that is that it's just a serial mm-hmm. killer story. And serial killers are different from movie. Like Jason Voorhees is not a serial killer. Ted Bundy is a serial killer. Jason Voorhees is an entity. He mm-hmm. is a power. He's a force for evil. All of those movie monsters are. And horror movies in the 90s got too real. That's one of my biggest issues with found a lot of found footage movies, too. That's What I love about found footage is its capacity to masquerade as reality. Right. I mean, obviously, that's why it's there. But when it does that in a way to reinforce a thing I already know about the world, like, oh, there's people out there that'll kill people. Yeah. Or there's people out there that are dangerous or whatever. Whatever it is, if it's, if it's trying to present to me a real-world fear in this format that's meant to mimic 
the real world right and aid the suspension of disbelief and get me more invested and ground me more in the reality of it my attitude is always what's the point why don't I just watch a documentary about that? Right. Then? If I want to watch a found footage horror movie, I like the implications of setting something supernatural in this grounded right. reality. And that's kind of that's kind of what I was getting at saying horror movies got too real. Mm-hmm. With the Blair Witch, it was that, but it also married the supernatural aspect to it. Yes. And it made the Blair Witch kind of made it okay to be scared of monsters again. It's effective in the way it makes things like, oh, we've been walking for two hours and now we're right back mm-hmm. at the same spot. That could that doesn't have to be supernatural. That could just happen mm-hmm. and anyone is going to be really uh, horrified by yep. that if you're already lost and you just spent another two hours. But also it married the idea of, yeah, all that's scary, but also there's this fucking witch building stick figures and putting rocks outside tents. <laughs> yeah. And that's coming too. It feels to me like the point where we started being okay with the supernatural again. Exactly. And I think that ultimately that's why the Blair Witch was the success that it is. Whereas the last yeah. broadcast is almost more of a footnote or a curiosity is because the last broadcast by the late nineties, I would say that we were already kind of fed up with the reality of the psychological thriller. And we were kind of sick of being ashamed of the word horror and making fun of it. That's not to say that the meta teen slasher was completely dead by then, but it was already wearing thin in a much shorter period of time than the slasher we were already getting close to the scary movie franchise. Yeah, where where the joke was at the expense of the satire. Right. So we were in full-blown parody territory. Which scary movie, by the way? Fantastic. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. I haven't watched it in a while. It's really but, good. But ultimately, I think if we're talking about this in a decade format again, I think that's why Blair Witch worked, whereas last broadcast kind of got left by the wayside, is yeah. that last broadcast was just more of what we knew. Yeah, it was kind of yeah. a the, the ending media, is kind of a cop out. Yeah. The media is dangerous if used irresponsibly. And yes, there are people out there that'll kill people and yes, there are unsolved mis- murders. Yeah. And you know, human agents do terrifying things sometimes. Right. But Blair Witch was like, "Hey, this is real." It didn't it managed to make the super right just like you said, it managed to make the supernatural okay again. And scary again without compromising this idea of grounding it in a reality right. that we could recognize. Well, I think it delivered what the last broadcast promised because you wanted the last broadcast to end with the Jersey Devil killing mm-hmm. those kids. Yeah. Like, and it doesn't. And the Blair Witch does. And that's the last broadcast to me almost feels like it was trying to be too smart. Mm hmm. And at the end, just kind of pulls the rug out and goes, I gotcha. It's still just a serial killer. And that makes it a lesser film Mm -hmm. to me. And I feel like the Blair Witch just delivered what we wanted from the last broadcast. Yeah. And it I think you still see some of the influence from the Blair Witch in the movies that to me, a movie like The Ring feels like a marriage of silence of the lambs and an actual horror movie because Mm -hmm. it's still like this like you see her just kind of going about her daily 
business, but she's also watched this video. It almost works in the same way as the Blair Witch, where there's just this cloud hanging over her where you know, all right, well, this is building to something. But in the meantime, she's just like running around trying to tell people what's going on. And like, it's more realistic than a lot of horror movies. And I think that's a trend. A lot of that probably started with the Blair Witch, where people realized, okay, we can make this look real, but also have fun with it and make it still a horror movie. We're going to get into this in the next episode more, but the Blair Witch Project, I think, would have started a new trend. It kind of did, but it also kind of didn't, because it still wasn't until 2007 with Paranormal Activity that found footage movies became a huge thing. Right. Blair Witch Project, at the time, there were a bunch of parodies of it. There was a bunch of stuff making fun of it. Uh, I think because nobody really knew how to work it. I mean, you it had, seemed like a fluke. Yeah, you had some found footage horror movies after that, obviously, between that and 2007, and some really good ones. But the studios were just like, okay, Supernatural Horror's back. Here we go. Yeah. And it didn't quite work. I mean, they, there was the Haunting remake the same year as Blair Witch Project. Yeah. But you know what? I don't... I was trying to set up for the next episode because I was going to be like, I think 9-11 fucked that up. Because <laughs> uh, 9-11, I think, shocked us right back into reality shit. Yeah. Uh, and it's why we, it's why the torture porn stuff started. But forget that. But we'll forget, get to that on we'll the next episode. We'll get to that on the next one. You can Anyway. Things go in cycles. It happens with music. Like in the 90s, mm-hmm. Nirvana comes in and they're like, all right, no more titties in music. Uh, we don't want to talk about women. It's not going to be a sexualized thing, but we are going to rock pretty fucking hard. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, a lot of people were like, yes, I like that. But then there's also this undercurrent that's like, mm, but can we have some songs about women? And then we get Limp Biscuit. <laughs> and sometimes that reaction is good. Sometimes it's bad. I feel like the Blair Witch was kind of a reaction to the supernatural element being kind of stripped from movies in the 90s. And I think the last broadcast, too, to some extent. And I think that Blair Witch was like, can we have ghosts again? Yeah, it made it okay to... Can we just have ghosts again? Yeah. Can we tell a fucking ghost story? Like, last broadcast was almost too concerned with the allegory. Right. The way I have been concerned this entire episode (laughs) with the allegory of the wilderness and what, what its parallels are and what it means, all of the different elements of it. Right. Whereas Blair Witch is like, yeah, 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 we get it. It's the woods. It's a wilderness. It's a new fucking age of that has its own problems. Can I tell you a ghost story? Yeah, yeah. And that's it was refreshing by yeah. that point mm-hmm. in horror movies. It really was, and I think it, you know, it it set up obviously the the next. I mean, not really the next ten years in horror, but to some extent. Yeah, I mean, I would say that it set up some things for the next 10 years of horror and i would say that some of the things that it could have set up were interrupted very rudely very early on in the next decade yeah and we will get to that we will next time the important thing is it's not hard to get lost in america it is not we are all lost in america yes america may be lost absolutely (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i don't know what the fuck i was gonna say you know what we should say Class deceased. deceased.